we got the Bible. Now, this is going to be a, a little different because to a large degree, there's going to be history. There's going to be a, uh, a lot of, uh, it's not so much going to be a textual study. Uh, for the past two quarters in here, we, we've had a study of the, the book of Hebrews, and then we've had a study on uh, uh, unsung heroes of Scripture. Ben's done a great job these past two quarters. But this class is going to be a little bit different because you're not always going to be diving into the text of Scripture. Uh, and at times, you may even feel like it's boring. Well, I apologize in advance. But there's a reason we're going to do this class. There's a reason we're going to study how we got the Bible. Uh, in fact, there's a few reasons why studying this is important. And one of those reasons is because at some point in time, we have to be able to defend our faith. And defending our faith isn't just limited to defending why we believe what we believe. It's also defending why we hold up God's Word as the ultimate source of truth. There are a lot of people out there who want to discredit God's Word, and one of the ways they attempt to discredit it is by uh, discrediting, discrediting its origin. They will uh, criticize the process of the development of Scripture as well as the process of the, interp uh, excuse me, the translation of Scripture, and they'll take that route uh, to undermine it. And we need to be able to defend Scripture as far as, as not just the text itself, but, but the compilation of it, how God brought it together as this one unified, cohesive book that we, we have in our possession. We need to be able to deal with some really difficult questions at some point. People are going to challenge the Bible and claim that it's full of contradictions and errors. They're going to claim that it's been copied and translated so many times that it's led to errors. They're going to ask, how can you be sure that the Bible is the same now as it was when it was written? They're going to question the process by which the books of the Bible that made it into the canon were selected. And why, why weren't additional books included? Books that you will hear referred to as the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, and we'll deal with those much later. You'll also deal with criticisms about the translation you choose to use versus other translations. And, and in time, the goal is for us to address all of those issues to some degree. So this class has an apologetic element to it. But we also need to examine how we got the Bible to help us eliminate some confusion about things we see in the text. I want to illustrate that very quickly. Uh, go ahead and with your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 8. Just very quickly, I want, to see how, I want you to see how easy it is for there to be some elements in the Bible that, that are confusing and how a study of the Bible's origin and, and how it came together can help deal with those confusions. So we're going to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Um, let me see here. What translations do we have in our audience today, in our physical audience today? Uh, anybody in here have a uh, King James Version? New King James? And we got King James, New King James. All right, anybody in here have a New American Standard? New American Standard, 
We, we, we have any ESVs? NIVs? I, I could just start making up syllables, and you probably wouldn't even know if I was announcing, because you got NLTs, CEVs, CRVs, you got all these different, CRV, that's a Honda. Um, anyway, we have all these different, these different translations. All right, somebody with a English Standard Version, will you read Acts chapter 8 and verse 37 for me, out loud? Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. It's not in the English Standard. All right, New American Standard. Would you read Acts chapter 8 and verse 37? And I believe the New King James has it. The New International does not. Actually, the ESV and the NIV probably have it. You probably have to find it in the footnotes, though. Now, why is it that some English translations would not include that verse. Now let's look at another thing. Let's go over to Mark chapter 16. I want you to know something there very quickly. And, and don't worry, in time I'll address the Acts 8.37 issue. But we've got a lot of work to do before I do that. Now look at Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 has a very um, uh, well-used passage in it referring to belief and baptism. But I want you to notice what appears in your English translation right above or around verse 9. I'm not sure the New King James Version does it, but the ESV, I think the NIV, and the New American Standard will all have something right before verse 9. What do you see? In the English Standard Version, there's this little bracketed statement that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. What? Well, what does that mean? Now go over to John chapter 8. Again, I will address the Mark 16 thing in time. John chapter 8. The first 11 verses, or 12 verses of John chapter 8, it's the first 11 verses, are a very famous story in the life of Jesus. The woman caught in adultery. If you look at John chapter 8, you may need to back up and see the very last verse of John chapter 7. It would be John chapter 7, verse 53. You'll see likely another bracketed statement or some sort of insertion in the text. The English Standard Version says the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Both of these situations of Mark 16 and John chapter 8, both situations are an issue of manuscripts. And we'll get around to addressing that in time as well as to why some manuscripts have it, why some don't, why your translation chooses to include it or why it doesn't, or why it includes these inserted bracketed statements. Can, and we'll deal with, can we trust these stories? You see, there are some things that, at first glance, do feel confusing. But when we study how we got the Bible, when we, when we study its origins and its evidence, those kind of issues fade away. You see, the ultimate reason we want to study how we got the Bible is to deepen our faith in God's Word. 
Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. And, and that doesn't just mean, uh, excuse me, it's impossible to please God without faith. And, and, and the possession of faith that we're expected to have doesn't just mean believing in God. It means taking God at His word. And think about it. This is the word we take Him at. So we need to be able to have confidence in this. If we don't have confidence, if we don't have faith in this, then what is this life we live all about? And so the idea behind this class is to help you reach a point where you have a a greater appreciation for God's Word and a deeper uh, faith and trust in the fact that this is indeed God's complete revelation for mankind. And I hope through the course of this study will only embolden your faith through the process. And one added benefit will be an understanding of why our English translations vary between them. Why the compilers of those translations make translation decisions and why certain texts are bracketed and certain texts aren't. So I wanted to just give you an understanding of why we're doing this class and kind of get an, uh, an appreciation of the goal of this class, and ultimately it's to help increase your faith that that Bible you hold in your hand or that you uh, obtain on your phone is indeed God's Word. With that being said, tonight, tonight may not challenge you very much because ultimately what I want to do tonight is just some groundwork. I want us to look at the Bible by the numbers. I want us to examine some basic information about the Bible so that we can appreciate it all the more. I'm going to call, I want you to understand just how unique the Bible it is, and to help with that, we're going to look at it by the numbers. Now, first, let me do this. The word Bible, anybody know what that word means? I'm telling you, we're going to be very basic tonight. Some of you may not learn a thing tonight. That's okay. I go many days without learning anything. But my, I, I want to lay the groundwork. The word Bible simply means book. It comes from the Latin uh, Biblia and Greek Biblos, both of which mean book. It's ultimately just the term for book. But it's the book. That's the key. Think about this. The Bible really isn't just a single book. It's a library of books. It's a collection of books brought together in one mega volume, if you will. The Bible continues to be the world's best-selling book, and it is the most quoted, the most published, the most translated, and ultimately the most influential book in history. What makes it so unique? That's what I want us to consider tonight. We're going to look at some different categories for a moment. Let's talk about the construction of the Bible. If I can, there we go. The Bible consists of two testaments. You know this. See, we're going very basic tonight. Two testaments. We refer to it as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, testament may not be the best word here. The word translated testament, or the, the word in, the, in Scripture that's translated testament, um, that that we get this idea from of two testaments. A a term that would probably be better is covenant. 
the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The, because the Old Testament addresses the law of Moses, which was a, a national covenant between God and his people. His people, which were comprised primarily of one nation, the nation of Israel. Meanwhile, the New Testament addresses what we could call the law of Christ, using terminology from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21, as well as Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. And, and the New Testament, in addressing the law of Christ, is referencing a universal covenant between God and his people. Not a national covenant, one that applies to all of mankind, and that resides in the blessings being bestowed upon his people made up of the church. And as you can see on the screen, our Bible also is not only two testaments, but it has several books. You probably knew this, that our Bible consists of 66 books, 39 of which are in the Old Testament, and 27 of which appear in the New Testament. Hopefully you knew that. I want you to understand in this class, though, that, we, that I will sometimes refer to the Hebrew Bible. And when I do, I'm referring to the Old Testament, but I'm using the politically correct terminology that a Jewish person would use. Because for a Jewish person, the Old Testament is not old. But it's important to distinguish in our purposes of our study throughout this quarter the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. Because the Hebrew Bible contains the same material as the Old Testament, but it's structured very differently. I'll get to it in just a moment. Uh, let me back up. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. Can you name them? Let's, let's do that. First one is? Second one is? Next? <laughs> All right. First and second Samuel, let's slow it down. Let's, let's do them individually. First Samuel, second Samuel. I am thoroughly pleased right now. And hopefully that just made you feel like a child again. But you know, when was the last time you were asked to name the books of the Old Testament? We don't do it very often. It's one of those practices that we, we ingrain in our children and then we abandon but it's good to know that many of you can still do it. Of course, I do believe there are some of you out there who are just waiting for the audience to say it so you could act like you were carrying along. Next week, I'm going to have all of you write them out 
and spell them correctly. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So we've got the 66 books of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 66 of the entire Bible, and then, of course, there's the, the 27 of the New. If you can get the Old, I'm pretty sure you've got the New under your belt. So that's what our Bible is structured as. Now, here's why I brought up the Hebrew Bible a moment ago. Because the Hebrew Bible does not have 39 books in it like our Old Testament does. It has 24, but it still has all the same books that we do. Let me show you what the Hebrew Bible would look like. Ooh, there, that's where I've mentioned the uh, 24. This is the order, the, the basic order for the most part, and the naming of the books that would fall in the Hebrew Bible. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Samuel, Kings. Notice, there's not a first and a second. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and even when you go to Chronicles, first and second, those did not exist as separate books until we get to something called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint will be referenced quite a bit throughout this study. The Septuagint is the term for a Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed by the time of Jesus. And when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, because that had become a universal language, when they did that, they made some structural changes. They divided Samuel up into two, they divided Kings up into two books, and they divided Chronicles up into two books. There were others that they made some changes to as well. But you can see Kings, and you can see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then there's a book called the Twelve. That's all the minor prophets, all twelve minor prophets, wrapped up into one book. Obviously, with, with, with over time, that got divided up into 12 separate books. Of course, you got Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, or Solomon. Uh, then there's Ruth, Lamentations. Sometimes, the Hebrew Bible even drops down to 22 books because they will take Jeremiah and Lamentations and put them together as a two-volume work as well because Jeremiah being the author of both. Then there's Esther, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah are are in the Hebrew Bible one book by themselves, and then, of course, Chronicles. So I, reference, I will reference the Hebrew Bible every once in a while in this study, and I want you to understand that when I do so, I'm not talking about different texts overall. I'm talking about a different structure uh, and a different order and so on. But it's important for us to recognize this because from a standpoint of, a, of the, the, old, the Old Testament that Jesus would have been familiar with, Though he probably used the Septuagint the most, the Greek translation, this would be the, the, what he would be familiar with from a Hebrew standpoint. With that being said, let's go on to talking about genre. So our Bible has various books. It also has various genres that these books fall into. Now you've studied this more than likely throughout your lifetime and maybe even taught children the different genres associated with with the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's what's fascinating to me. The Bible is a single book with multiple genres. It, it contains history, sermons, letters, songs, love letters, geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, and numerous legal documents. What we have in the Bible is such a, a variety of genre and materials is fascinating. 
you will, like me, I'm sure, come across certain sections of Scripture and you are just bored to tears. Reading a genealogy is like torture, isn't it? Especially with the names that we can't pronounce. I know that when I assign Scripture readings on Sundays, I have people who are panicking till they see it because they're afraid I'm going to throw a name in there that they can't pronounce. But the Bible, this just adds the fact that the Bible includes this kind of information that you and I might not think is really that relevant just adds, excuse me, just adds to the, an appreciation of God's v- variety that he brought to this book. That he would include architectural specs. That he would include population surveys and things like that. Now when we look at the Old Testament, we, see the, we view the Old Testament as a fourfold division of genre based on a a topical arrangement of the books. And guess what? This arrangement came from the Septuagint. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, not only did it separate out some of these books, but it also organized it into the genres that we're most familiar with. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we think of it in terms of these four categories. Law, history, wisdom or poetry, We say it both ways sometimes. And then, of course, the prophets with two categories there, major and minor prophets. Now, one thing just as a side note, does anybody know the difference between major and minor prophets? Why is one major and one minor? It has everything to do with the length of the books. Ah, sorry, buddy. Major prophets are longer, minor prophets are shorter. That's the general idea. Not one more important than the other. So we do this fourfold, this four-category thing for the uh, Old Testament. And it makes sense to us. Our Western minds love great organization, and this works for us. But when you look at the Hebrew Bible, it had only three groupings. That won't make as much sense to you. And at times, they only had two groupings. Most of the time, the Old Testament is viewed simply as the law and the prophets. But over time, it came to be known as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Let me explain for a minute this, uh, this breakdown of what Jesus would have known of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, I should say. First, there is the Torah. And that, means, that word means law. And as you may expect, this section is exactly the same as our Old Testament. It has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is all, those five books, doesn't matter if you're looking at the Hebrew Bible or what we call our Old Testament, either way, they are always viewed as the, the five books of the law. In the Hebrew Bible, they had a second category called the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im means prophets. And like our prophetic section, it was divided into two subgroups former prophets, and latter prophets. But this is where it gets a little tricky. They refer to some books as prophets. The Hebrew Bible refers to some books as prophets that we think are history. And so in the former prophets category, you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We don't think of those as prophetic works, but in the the mind of the Hebrew Bible and in the mind of the Israelites and the Jews, uh, those books are, are speaking on behalf of God, so therefore they are prophetic in a sense. The latter prophets for them are Isaiah, Jeremiah, which 
more than that, which at times would include lamentations, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, which is all the minor prophets. The third group came to be known as the Ketavim, which means writings. And this third group originally was associated with the Nevi'im, with the prophets, but over time it came to be separated out into its own third group. And within it, it has three categories. One category is poetical books, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Then there is what's called the Megalot, the five scrolls. That's what that term means. And interestingly, the five scrolls, the reason this kind of got into its own little category is because these five books really only get, or only get emphasized during certain feasts or festivals. So the, books of, uh, the book of, of Song of Solomon is read every year at Passover. And the book of Ruth is read every year at the Feast of Weeks, or what we would also know as Pentecost. Lamentations uh, is always associated with a with a a, a non a, a not, with a, a a religious holiday that's not in the text of Scripture called Tishbehov. And then Esther is always read at Purim, which is a holiday related to that book. And then Ecclesiastes is always read around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. These, these five books are specifically associated with those holy days, if you will. And then finally, you have the three historical books, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah as one book, and then, of course, Chronicles. And so you, this is the breakdown for the Hebrew Bible. Interestingly, you can see Jesus potentially make reference to this three-category um, setup of the Hebrew Bible on one occasion. It's in... Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus there, he says this, Luke 24, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, he did not specifically say in the law, the prophets, and the writings, he said, law, prophets, and psalms, which is the first book of that third section. More often than not, you're going to see Jesus and other New Testament, uh, New Testament speakers and writers refer simply to the law and the prophets. That was their general term for the entire Old Testament, for the entire Hebrew Bible, because at one point in time, it was simply the Torah and the Nevi'im. But Jesus may have made reference to this three-category uh, three system at one point. Now, going, turning our attention to the New Testament. The genre of the New Testament is also four in total. We have the Gospels, which constitute Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have our one book of history, which is Acts. We have the letters or epistles, which constitute Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 3rd John, and Jude. And then, of course, what gets often referred to as prophecy or potentially even referred to as apocalyptic uh, is the book of Revelation. It identifies itself essentially as both. So we have four genres, four groups in the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible only has three. So the Bible so far is a unique book because it's multiple books within one book, 66 books in one book. It's a unique book because it has this variety of genres within it. 
It is also a unique book because of the language in which it's written. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, but there are some small portions that were written in Aramaic. You and I don't really know the difference between those two languages. Aramaic is similar to Hebrew. It's the, it became the spoken language of the Jewish people after the Babylonian captivity. And the Aramaic sections that appear in the Old Testament, they include two words in Genesis chapter 31 and verse 47. The single verse of Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 11. Six chapters in Daniel, from Daniel chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 4 through Daniel chapter 7 and verse 28. And then several chapters in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4 and verse 8 through chapter 6 and verse 18 and chapter 7 verses 12 through 26. It's not a lot of Aramaic, but there is some in there. Now, we also have to acknowledge that the New Testament preserves some Aramaic statements in it. For instance, you can go to Mark chapter 5 and verse 41, and there's this little statement, Talithia kumi, it means little girl, get up. Um, you can look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 34, uh, where there's the word ephephtha, if I even got close. That means be open. And, but the one that's the most familiar will be the one that is said at the cross in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there are Aramaic terms that make their way into the New Testament, but the New Testament is not necessarily written in Aramaic. In fact, the New Testament is written in Greek. Now there are some who contend that the original text of the New Testament was written in Aramaic and Greek was the first translation. But that's not held by the vast majority of scholars who study this subject. And here's why. It's because Greek was the universal language of the day. Although the spoken language of Jesus was Aramaic, Greek was the universal language. And you have to think that it would have been in in, in the providence of God for the gospel to be proclaimed in a language that was known throughout the entire Mediterranean world at that time. Aramaic would not have been known by the vast majority of people. It would have been limited to the Jews. But Greek, Greek was as universal as you could get. And so it was the perfect language for the gospel to begin in. And so we have three languages that are used in the making of our Bible. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You know what that means? That means that unless you know Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, you will forever be using a translation not in an original text. That's a humbling thing when you really think about it. Now, Jay, Ben, and I, and I'm sure there are others, have taken Greek courses. I took one semester of Hebrew, and, well, that just throws everything out of whack because it goes backwards. And even if you study it like we have, it's very hard to gain a mastery over it. And so you're, you're largely at the mercy of your translations unless you learn how to use the tools that are available to us related to these languages. And there are great tools for the languages. 
And so it's going to be vitally important in this quarter as we study this subject to really understand the value of our translations and how they get to the point that they do that you can trust them. We'll be covering that much later, but we need to understand that we don't have, that, that the vast majority of us cannot utilize the original language texts of these books. But here's the beauty of what God has done. He utilized three languages that categorically can be called dead languages. That means they are languages that are no longer evolving. They are languages that stop being spoken in their form. Now, don't get me wrong, Greek is still spoken today. But it's not the same Greek that was used at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Uh, the Greek that was used in the writing of the New Testament is called Koine Greek. That is no longer spoken. So therefore, it is considered a dead language. To, to help illustrate that, it's kind of like the, uh, the modern Greek and Koine Greek. It's kind of like the difference between modern English and Middle English. Like, did you ever read Canterbury Tales by Chaucer? That's just frustrating to read. You can grasp words, but there's a lot of it that doesn't make sense to you because you don't use that kind of English anymore. And it's the same thing with, with the Greek. It's, it is a dead language. It's an unevolved, unevolving language. That means the meaning of the words in Greek or the meaning of the words in Hebrew or the meaning of those words in Aramaic aren't changing. English is a changing language. There are things that we have words today that don't mean the same thing they did 30 years ago. And so that doesn't happen with the languages God chose to compile his word in. That's, what makes, that's another thing that makes the Bible unique and should make us appreciate it even more. So we've talked about the construction. We've talked about genre. We've talked about language. Let's talk about authors. The Bible is the work of multiple authors under the direction of a divine general editor. Its authors are comprised of kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, a doctor, and scholars. The Old Testament involved something like 30 or more different authors. We don't actually know everyone who, who was involved in the authoring of a text of the Old Testament. I came across this diagram that was pretty close that I want to show you the authors that we, are, we, are, we have confidence in for each book. I'll get to the New Testament in a minute. I don't know how well you can see that, but, we, but it's be believed with reasonable certainty that the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were written by Moses. That's been uh, passed down for centuries now. When it comes to some of the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, their authorship is largely unknown. Jewish tradition does ascribe some authors to some of these texts. For instance, Judges and Ruth are, in Jewish tradition, attributed to Samuel. 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel are attributed to uh, the prophets Gad and Nathan. 1st and 2nd Kings uh, are attributed in Jewish tradition to Jeremiah and 1st and 2nd Chronicles in Jewish tradition are attributed to Ezra. Beyond this, I'm trying to, I'm really having trouble seeing it. Then you have uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Ezra is believed to be the author of his own book, and Nehemiah, at least much of his. Some do contend that Ezra was involved in the writing of Nehemiah as well, as they were contemporaries. Esther and Job, as far as their authorship, is largely unknown. And then we can get into the more of the prophetic text, in the wisdom text. Psalm, the book of Psalms has multiple authors. The one you're going to be the most familiar with is, of course, David. David wrote the majority of the Psalms. Seventy-three are attributed to him. But twelve are attributed to Asaph, eleven to the sons of Korah, two are attributed to Solomon, one attributed to Moses. And then one attributed to a guy named Ethan and another single psalm attributed to He-Man. It's probably not pronounced that way, but I'm a kid from the 80s, so I'm going to pronounce it that way. Then we get to the book of Proverbs. Who authored Proverbs? Solomon, except for two of them, at least. There's a guy named Lemuel who, is, who has, uh, let's see, which proverb is it? King Lemuel actually has Proverbs 31 attributed to him, if you look at the first verse. And then there's Agur, the son of Jekai, who has attribution with Proverbs chapter 30. Beyond that, we do get into most of the prophets who have self-titled works. And I can't, I need to just turn around. So we have, uh, oh, I forgot about Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, which are believed to be attributed to, which are attributed to Solomon. Isaiah, his own work, Jeremiah and Lamentations go into Jeremiah. And then beyond that, we get into Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephyr, all those guys writing their own books. That's our best knowledge of the authors of the Old Testament. I'm going to spend a lot more time talking about New Testament throughout the course of this study than I am Old Testament. And I want to talk about the authors of the New Testament now. We have at least eight different authors in the New Testament. I say at least because there could be as many as nine depending on who actually authored the book of Hebrews. You know the authors, but how do you know that they are the authors? For instance, who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew. Scan those 28 chapters and find his name mentioned as the author. You won't. Who wrote Mark? Y'all were so confident with Matthew. What happened? Mark, authored by John Mark, as he's known in Scripture. What about Luke? John? <laughs> Thank you. So with our Gospels, nowhere in the four Gospels, or in Acts for that matter, is the author identified. That doesn't mean we don't know who the author is. It just means that in that day and age, they weren't as focused as we are on attributing their works or, or identifying themselves as the authors, I should say. Christian tradition largely plays a role in our understanding of who wrote these, these uh, uh, technically anonymous books. Uh, we have a group called the Apostolic Fathers. They will come up a, quite a bit in the course of this study. And when I mention the Apostolic Fathers, I'm referring to a select group of church leaders 
who supposedly had personal knowledge of some of the apostles, particularly the ones that lived the longest, like John. And these guys, the apostolic fathers and the writings attributed to that group, occurred in the first half of the second century. So these are church leaders in particular who followed after the, apost- after the apostles. These guys share information that they have about the authors of these texts and contribute a great deal to our understanding of how the New Testament came to be formed as a cohesive canon. And these apostolic fathers share, in some cases, what they learned from the apostles. There's one guy named Papias, an early church leader in the town of Heriopolis. That town is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 13. It's only a few miles outside of Laodicea and Colossae. Papias lived from about 60 AD to 130 AD. So think about that in terms of the New Testament. Does anybody know? No, I need to save that. I'll wait on that. When you're talking about 60 AD to 130 AD, he was born before Paul was executed. So there's not necessarily overlap with Paul, but there's overlap with some of the apostles who lived longer. I'm going to talk about this more in a minute, but like the book of Revelation probably wasn't written until the 90s AD. So Papias, if in fact the, the dating we have for his life is accurate, would have been about 30 years old when the book of Revelation was being written. So it's very possible he could have had interaction with John. And Papias had a, had a book called Interpretations of the Sayings of Jesus. It did no longer exists except for that it's quoted in the works of other early authors. And here's what Papias wrote. He wrote that he learned from John this, from the Apostle John, that Mark was the interpreter of Peter, and Mark wrote down accurately whatsoever Peter remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers. But with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings, wherefore Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took a special care, not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Here's my point. Within the first hundred years of the church, we may not have an autographed copy of Mark, but we have a guy who is a church leader telling us that he learned from the Apostle Paul that Mark was the author of the gospel attributed to him, and he got his information from Peter. Papias would go on to also say that Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language and each one interpreted them as best he could. So we have Papias also making mention that Matthew was the author of the gospel attributed to him. By the end of the second century, that's second century being year 100 to 200, so that that century right after the church's establishment or or after the first century, that just really got confusing and I'm sorry for that. We have this document called the Muratorian Fragment. It's the oldest surviving list of the New Testament canonical books. 
and it dates to the end of that second century. It dates to somewhere between about 170 and 200 A.D. And it makes these claims. The third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. Luke, the well-known physician after the ascension of Christ, when Paul had taken with him as one zealous for the law, composed it in his own name according to the general belief. Yet he himself had not seen the Lord in the flesh, and therefore as he was able to ascertain events, so indeed he begins to tell the story from the birth of John, a reference to John the Baptist. The Muratorian fragment also says, The fourth of the Gospels is that of John, one of the disciples. To his fellow disciples and bishops who had been urging him to write, he said, Fast with me from today to three days, and what will be revealed to each one, let us tell it to one another. In the same night it was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should write down all the things in his name, his own name, while all of them should review it. And the fragment goes on to say, The Acts of the Apostles were written in one book. For most excellent Theophilus, Luke compiled the individual events that took place in his presence, as he plainly shows, by omitting the martyrdom of Peter, as well as the departure of Paul from the city of Rome when he journeyed to Spain. Now, I'm not quoting these texts as gospel. I'm sharing them with you because they are historical documents from very early on that attribute Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts to the people we know them to be attributed to. And these aren't the only documents out there that exist that do so. So when we look at the Gospels, the authors of these texts have been preserved through tradition primarily, even though their names are not specifically identified in the text. Now when it comes to Luke, we have a little bit more evidence in the text because Luke and Acts are both addressed to the same person, to Theophilus. You can see that in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, as well as Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. So we know they, they, are, they work together in con conjunction with one another. What's interesting about the book of Acts is Acts has several we sections. What I mean by that, there's, there's, there's three sections in Acts, I believe, where the author is a first-person agent in the story. He's with Paul on a mission trip. He's with Paul traveling to Rome. He's talking in we language, not he or they language. And you can read through the stories and figure out what individuals could or which individuals could have been with Paul. Among that list of individuals that could have been with Paul are um, Titus, Demas, Christians, Justus, Epaphras, Epaphroditus, and Luke. So we have textual evidence that Luke could have been that first-person agent. And when you do a little bit of deduction, he becomes the clear favorite there. That addresses the authors of the Gospels and Acts. What about the Pauline letters? Well, that's the easy one. Because Paul tells us he wrote them. And there's very little... Um, disagreement with Paul's authorship on the, the uh, 13 letters associated with him. And so I've I listed, just for fun, the verses where he identifies himself as the author. Sometimes he used what's called an, uh, oh, I can't remember the word, Ben J. Amanuensis, which is a guy who writes for you, you dictate it, and he writes it down. Kind of like me using Ben right there. And Paul occasionally used that. The book of Romans is a great case of that. Now when we get to, uh, there's the other letters of Paul. When we get to the general epistles, you have Hebrews, which is unknown. Uh, ben did a great job of covering the authorship of Hebrews when he did that class two quarters ago. There are possible candidates. Paul is one of them. 
but it's not guaranteed that Paul wrote it. Another possible candidate is Apollos, uh, Barnabas, Clement, who was an early church leader, and then Luke. There, there, there's even a few others, but Hebrews is of unknown authorship. James uh, is written by Jesus' brother, not the apostle. The apostle died way too early to be the author of James. And uh, Jude is also written by one of Jesus' brothers. Um, then you have Peter. He wrote his, 1 John. Now, 1 John is, and you can see that James, Peter, and Jude all identify themselves in the text, but in John's letters, he is not identified. That one is another case of the apostolic fathers revealing that to us. And then, of course, the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation, John identifies himself as the author in that text multiple times. So that deals with authorship. Now let's talk about this, the date. The Bible was written over a period of 1,300 to 1,500 years. From, from the writing of the first books of the Old Testament to the, the completion of the New Testament, 13 to 1,500 years passed. That's a long time. And consider this. The New Testament only took one century. Basically only took 50 years to compile it. The first books of the Old Testament, which more than likely were Genesis through Deuteronomy, were likely written somewhere between the 15th and 13th century B.C. during the wilderness wanderings. While the last book, which was probably written, was Malachi, was written during uh, the 5th century in the days of Nehemiah. And then in the, when we get to the New Testament, it was entirely written during the first century. The earliest books, which could be either James or 1 Thessalonians or Galatians, were likely written around 50 A.D. And the last book, which was more than likely Revelation, written around 90 A.D. I put together this table, which is probably really hard to see, especially since half of it gets cut off on the edges, that kind of show the datings, some of the standard datings of the New Testament books. Uh, now, there's a lot of uh, contention on when some of these books were written, some earlier, some later. Uh, this is my best theorizing on the information available to me. Um, but James was likely written very early in 46 to 48 A.D. Uh, Galatians around 48 A.D., if you accept a, a particular theory associated with it. First Thessalonians around 50, 52, so on. What you can't see on the far left is... Uh, a shaded area that refers to the establishment of the church. Think about this. The texts that we have in our Bible, are the, the earliest ones of the New Testament, are being written within 20 years of the establishment of the church. The church was likely established sometime between 26 and 30 A.D. Now that probably contradicts what you've heard most of your life. Most of your life, what year did, was the church established? 33 A.D.? Here's the issue with that. It's based on the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was made in 1582, I believe it was, and it estimated Jesus' birth at year zero. Now, I've got to say, in 1582, they did a pretty good job at estimating the birth of Jesus. The problem is, it has since been determined that King Herod died in 4 B.C. If King Herod died in 4 B.C., then that would mean Jesus' birth would have to be backed up a little bit. In other words, when the Gregorian calendar was made, they may have been off by a few years on calculating the birth of Jesus. But they did a, a much better job than I could have done. 
And so maybe Jesus was born in 4 to 6 B.C., and so we've got to add on a few years to get to the mark of 30 years when he started his ministry, three years of doing his ministry. So it's possible that the church may have been established earlier than 33 A.D., by, by maybe even 30 A.D. It's not guaranteed. It's just possibility. We don't know the exact year Jesus was born. We don't know the exact year the church was established. We don't really need that information. No matter what, we do know that these texts were starting to be, compiled, starting to be written within two decades of the church's establishment. And so, uh, while I put this together, we don't have time to go through all of these because I want to get to one last thing before we wrap up, but you can see basically an idea, get an idea in your head of, of, of when these texts were written. The final thing I want to mention is the organization of the Bible. The Bible has 1,189 chapters, 31,000 verses. The Old Testament has 929 of those chapters with over 23,000 verses. The New Testament has 260 chapters with, over, with nearly 8,000 of those verses. But here's the thing. Chapters and verses weren't added for over a millennia. When the Bible was written, it was not written in the breakdown that you know with chapters and verses. Those were implemented by somebody much later so that we can locate passages easier. And it's very beneficial. We all know that. But when you read the Bible, sometimes a chapter interrupts a thought that the author never intended to be interrupted. I do this tonight just to give you a general overview of some things about the Bible. More of this information will be expounded upon in the coming weeks. I hope I didn't bore you too much with this. It will not always be like this, for the record. Let's uh, close out our time tonight with a word of prayer, and I hope you'll come back and stay with us in this study as we journey through the, uh, the origins of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a night of study. We're grateful that we have this opportunity to, to gather together, to see each other, uh, and to study your word. We're thankful that we have the technology that allows people who need to stay home to be able to study along with us online. Uh, we're thankful that the children are able to return to class if they so desire, and we ask for your blessings on that as it moves forward. And may you keep our children safe as they engage in this, these uh, Bible study hours. Lord, as we engage in this study over the next several weeks, may it deepen our faith. May it uh, impact our ability to appreciate your word all the more. And may it bring glory to you that we study this. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Thank you for preserving your word for us and help us to devote ourselves to it. Lord, it is through your son's name that we pray. Amen.